Thank you, praise team, for, man, just walking us through the gospel in those songs this morning, those readings. So appreciate, Bob, your leadership and the team to lead us through that throne room and prepare us to hear from God and His Word this morning. So if you do have your Bible, and I hope you, should, hope you do, please turn them to uh, Genesis chapter 17. We started into Genesis 17 last week. Um, by God's grace, we'll finish it this week. We'll finish the, rest, the second half of this chapter. Um, as I mentioned last week, there are four sections to this chapter. I've divided it into four sections. The first two we covered last week, uh, verses 1 through 8, is where God appears to Abraham, commands him to live a life of holiness, and then begins to reiterate his covenant promises to him. So we saw that last week. God shows up, physically manifests himself in some way in a theophany to Abraham, and then he commands him, walk before me and be blameless. And then he reiterates these covenant promises that he's been peppering Abraham with ever since chapter 12. And he adds more, greater detail to some of those covenant promises here in chapter 17. That was the first section. The second section was in verses 9 through 14 where God gives Abraham a command, uh, the command of, of circumcision as a sign of this covenant. And we talked about last week how for New Testament Christians, baptism is a sign of the new covenant for us. But for both the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, entrance into the true people of God, true spiritual Israel, is by faith. It was for Abraham, and it is for us as well. Abraham was justified by faith alone, just as we are. So just as for Abraham, he was not justified by circumcision, just as we are not justified by the physical act of baptism. We're both justified by faith in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, in the hope of a Messiah who would sacrifice himself for the sins of man. And then we're given the sign of the covenant. For Old Testament people of God, it was circumcision. For the New Testament people of God, it is baptism. So that's the first two sections of chapter 17 This morning, we're going to cover the second half, which are the the second two sections of chapter 17. The first part in verses 15 through 21, where God now changes not just Abram's name to Abraham, but Sarai's name to Sarah, and issues the promise of Isaac. The birth of Isaac to Sarah is foretold. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in those verses this morning, but we're also, by God's grace, Lord willing, we're going to finish this chapter with verses 22 through 27, which is the last section of this chapter, which is where Abraham obeys the command to circumcise all the males in his household. So those are the four sections of this chapter. We're going to cover the last two this morning. So let's read God's word. We're going to read Genesis 17 verses 15 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll dive in. This is God's word. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. 
and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, was, Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for preserving it throughout the ages so that we can trust that this is your breath. This is the very breath of God. And so we ask that you would... um, impress upon us these truths that you would drive them deep into our souls so that we would be changed for your glory we don't ask father that we would simply be smarter about what it means but that our lives would look different as a result so we ask that your word would do what only your word can do and that is convict challenge correct discipline and change us by your grace so that you might be glorified both in us and through us, individually and corporately as the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're looking at the second two sections of chapter 17 this morning. Um, So I'm going to call them sections 1 and 2. The first is that section there, verses 15 through 21, where Sarah, Sarai, excuse me, becomes Sarah, and where Isaac is promised. The birth of Isaac is foretold. So look, look what he says in verse 15, right off the bat. He says, and God said to Abraham. So God is still speaking. This is the same theophany. This is the same physical manifestation of God to Abraham that we saw in the first two sections of chapter 17. No time has transpired between those divine speeches in the first half and this, these divine speeches that we see here. So this is the same theophany, and God is still speaking. And what does, he, what does he now say to Abraham? He says in verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So God changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. But unlike with Abram's name change from Abram to Abraham, there doesn't seem to be any like um, real significance to the changing of the pronunciation of her name. With Abram, his name, his name Abram meant father, and Abraham, Abraham or Abraham meant father of multitudes, father of nations. 
And so that, that made sense that God was doing that. There, there doesn't seem to be any kind of grammatical change here. Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. It's another word for princess is what that word means. But it's clear that God is using the changing of her name to mark out this as a time where he is going to bless her. Just as he said with Abraham's name change, listen, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you into a nation and kings are going to come from you. He now is going to say the same thing about Sarah, and so he changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. That he's going to bless her, and that he's going to call forth from her a blessing. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> God says, I will bless her, bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. So in other words, Abraham, you've got a son. You've got Ishmael through Hagar, but I'm going to give you another son. And this son is going to come through Sarah, your wife. Now, how does Abraham respond to this pronouncement? Abraham's response in this passage is fourfold. First of all, he falls down, he worships, and he laughs. Now, that's an odd combination, right? Look at verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, in our context, in 21st century America, in this Western context in which we live, in our culture, we're going to, put those, we're going to run those two responses together, right? But we can't do that in ancient Hebrew. We, we, in, our, in our connotation, we, that's kind of a figure of speech. We talk about someone that was falling down laughing, right? And so that's the mental picture that we get, that he fell on his face and laughed. He was laughing so hard, so uncontrollably, that he falls down on his face. But that figure of speech in English doesn't translate into ancient Hebrew. In order to understand this, we need to seek to understand that phrase, that Abraham fell on his face, in the context of Hebrew culture. And in the Hebrew culture, that phrase always pertained to worship. Always. To fall on one's face meant only one thing. To bow in reverential awe before divinity or before royalty. To, to bow in humble submission and humility, yielding oneself to either a god or a king. And, and it, it was an expression of praise and honor and thanks to that god or king. It's the same response that we saw from Abraham in verse 3 of this very same chapter. Back there, God first showed up to him and he said, I will multiply you greatly. You're not just going to be Abram. You're not just going to be a father and the father to Ishmael. I'm going to multiply you greatly. You're going to be the father of, of nations, a multitude of nations. And Abraham there fell on his face in worship. And here he does the same. So this isn't... Abraham laughing so uncontrollably that he falls down on his face. This is him falling prostrate before God, awash in reverential awe before God and his amazing ways. So he worships, but then he also laughs. There's no way of, of deciphering that word other than the fact that he laughed. So he worships and he laughs. So what kind of laughing is this? Well, some old Bible commentators tend to say that this is a laughter of joy. That's a lot of what the, what the older commentators say. 
But there's nothing in the text that is going to give us. We have to read that into the text. There's nothing from the text that tells us that this was a laughter of joy. In fact, if we look at the context here of these verses, it's clear that he goes on to, to, uh, to show an expression of doubt. He goes on to, to have this um, expression of reasoning with himself and, and talking about how, how can this possibly be. And so this doesn't seem to be a laughter of joy. This seems to be a, a laughter of incredulity. It seems to be a laughter of amazement. And so he worships, but he also laughs. So this is not a laughter of joy. Uh, if, if he was laughing with joy here, it would be a laughter that resulted from 100% belief, right? Oh my goodness, God, this is amazing. This is so awesome that you're going to give me a son through Sarah. This is incredible. I love this. This is awesome. But that's, that doesn't seem to fit with his doubtful reasoning that we see in this passage. So this isn't laughter that results from 100% belief, so it's not a laughter of joy, but neither is it a, a dismissive laughter. A dismissive laughter would be that which results from 100% unbelief, kind of just dismissive. <laughs> yeah, right, sure. Sure you're going to give me a son through Sarah. She's been barren all her life, and she's 90 years old. And you're going to give me a son through her. That's dismissive. And that does, doesn't seem to fit with Paul's, uh, Abraham's demeanor here either. And so this laughter of in, what I would call incredulity, this laughter of amazement, is a mixture of both belief and unbelief. This is amazing. This is incredible. How, how can it be? It can't be. But it is. This is amazing. It's a mixture of belief and unbelief. In other words, I believe you, Lord, but, but how can it be? It can't be, can it? This seems impossible, but, it, but I believe you. That's what this laughter is. And then his third response is that he begins to reason with himself. Note in verse 17, it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and then he said to himself, not to God, he said to himself, shall a, man, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So he begins to reason with himself here. He's like, okay, now I'm 99 years old at this point. My wife is 89 years old. In a year, I'll be 100 and she'll be 90. Can this, can this really happen? And so, and so he begins to reason with himself. So he worships first. He's demonstrating a level of trust in God. Bowing humbly, God, you are sovereign. God, you're in control. I bow before you. I yield before you and your ways and your plan and your will. And then his laughter demonstrates this mixture of belief and unbelief, this honest amazement, but, in, but incredulous that this, could this really happen? And then he begins to reason with himself, trying to figure out God's ways and Expressing, again, this mixture of belief and unbelief. And then fourthly, he pleads with God. Look at verse 18. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, this is not Abraham saying out of 100% faith, Oh, God, I believe you. You're going to give me another son. That's awesome. And, and by the way, don't forget Ishmael, my first son. I think that's giving Abraham too much credit here. 
To me, it seems like Abraham in verse 18 is speaking more out of his unbelief than his belief. I think he's saying here, well, God, thank you for that promise about a son through Sarah. But if you can't do it, if that's too hard for you, if, if, if you can't bring, bring about this second son thing, then don't forget my first. I've still got him, and can't you use him? Can't you do your thing through him? I think he's expressing more doubt here than trust. And, and as we've seen with Abraham ever since chapter 12, I don't know about you, but I'm oddly encouraged by his wavering faith, his, his lack of 100% pure trust in God. I'm, I'm, I'm oddly encouraged by that in the Genesis account. Here's Abraham, the model of faith, and even his faith is not 100%. Even his faith is not immune to doubt. God says to him, I'm going to give you a second son, and this one's going to come through Sarah. And what does Abraham do? He first, he bows in reverential awe. I'm not worthy of your glory, God. I bow before you and your ways. I yield myself to your will. Then he laughs in amazement. But how in the world is this going to happen? And then he reasons with himself. Wait, it can't happen, can it? it it's impossible. And then out of his well-reasoned doubt, he pleads with God, Lord, can't you just use Ishmael for your purposes? It'd be so much easier. Just use him. We're in good company when we respond to God in similar ways. It's not that we, that our, our weak faith at times is commendable in any way. But I think we should be encouraged by how God responds to Abraham. And before we look at how God does respond in verses 19 and following, we should note how God does not respond to Abraham. God does not rebuke Abraham for his wavering faith. God doesn't smite Abraham for not trusting him 100% in this. Instead, he is patient and he is gracious in his corrective reply. He patiently explains to Abraham what he is and what he is not going to do with Ishmael. I'm so glad that God is similarly patient and gracious with you and I when our faith is not as solid and as sure as it should be. God should only have to say it once and we believe him. And that's it. That's the end of the story. But he is gracious and he knows that our faith is weak many times. And he helps us in our unbelief, as he did the man in Mark 9 who was pleading for his son. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. The Lord is gracious and kind and patient with us in that, and I'm glad for that. There's also a bright spot here in Abraham's trust of God and his promises that's very subtle, but I want to point it out because I think it's, I think it's encouraging. Note that Abraham has known Sarah as Sarai for all his life, for as long as he's known her. And at, at this point, he's almost 100 years old, right? I have a hard time remembering my own son's names. And, and here he is, 100 years old, for as long as he's known this woman, potentially 80 years or more, all the way from back in Ur of the Chaldeans, she has been Sarai. How many times has he used her name? Countless, right? Countless. 
And all God has to say is, she's no longer Sarai. She's Sarah. And in the very next breath, he refers to her, to her as Sarah. I find that encouraging. I think there's hope for Abraham here in his faith journey, right? As there is for us as well. So Abraham asked God to remember his son Ishmael in verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you, Lord. So how does God respond? Look at verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Now I want to hit the pause button here, because depending on your translation into the English language, it might say no, it might say yes. So the ESV, the New American Standard, translate verse 19 as no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. The NIV, the King James Version, other English translations say, yes, but Sarah, your son, shall, your wife, shall bear you a son. So which is it? Yes or no? Those are two mutually exclusive answers, right? It can't be both, so which is it? As you know, it's a trick question. The answer is neither. It's neither a hard yes nor a hard no. The word in question here in the Hebrew is the adverb aval, which which predominantly is used in the affirmative to, to, uh, to modify a verb. It's used in the affirmative. So we should actually lean towards the yes in the reply. But it's always, it always contains a corrective sense. And so if we translate it yes, it should be yes but. And if we translate it no, it should be no but. And all of the English translations do include the but there. So the key here is to understand what Abraham was asking for and then unpack God's answer to him. So back to verse 18. What's the question? Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That's his request. God, what about Ishmael? Can't you bless him? Can't he be the one through whom you will bring nations and kings? God God answers in the affirmative. And that Ishmael will be the father of kings and nations, as we'll see in this text. But God's answer is also corrective. Yes, he will be the father of kings and nations. But, no, he will not be the child of promise. So listen to the rest of God's corrective in verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then the affirmative part of God's answer is in verse 20 next. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And when we covered Ishmael's birth to Hagar in chapter 16, we noted that in in Genesis chapter 25, we're going to see Ishmael's sons. He's given 12 sons that become 12 princes over 12 tribes. And most of those tribes end up residing in Arabia, which is why many connect the sons of Ishmael with Arabs. It doesn't mean that all Arabs can be linked back and and trace their lineage back to Ishmael, but many can. And furthermore, we know that most of the earliest Muslims were descendants of Ishmael. In fact, the lineage of the prophet Muhammad is traced back to Ishmael according to Islamic writings themselves. So 
We can link Ishmael with Islam. That doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that all Muslims trace their lineage back to Ishmael, but some do. So at least in part, God did answer Abraham in the affirmative, and that yes, he would bless his son Ishmael. He would bless him and multiply him, just not in the way in which he's going to do so with the son that's going to come through Sarah, the son whom he should name Isaac. So again, the corrective part, again, is mentioned in verse 21. Next, he says, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So what God is doing here in this this third section of chapter 17 is he's He's drawing a line of demarcation between Isaac and Ishmael. There's a a very clear contrast there between Isaac and Ishmael. And we'll continue to see that in this book. God says to Abraham, my promises to you are not going to come through Ishmael. They're going to come through Isaac. Both were, were Abraham's sons. So why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Because it really does come down to God's choice, right? Is he going to choose Isaac or is he going to choose Ishmael to to continue his promise? The promise that he made back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. There's going to come one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And we're going to trace that promise all the way to the cross When Jesus died on the cross, one who came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. When Jesus died on the cross, he crushed the head of Satan, defeating sin and death for all time. So why did God choose Isaac to bring that promise through and not Ishmael? God could have chosen Ishmael just as much as he had chosen Isaac. But why? Why did he choose the way that he did To answer that question, keep your finger here at Genesis 17 and flip back with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to do a little bit of a recap of our study of Romans that we did, at least this part was at least a couple of years ago, where we walked through Romans chapter 9 together. Now this is very, very important because... In choosing Isaac over Ishmael, according to the Apostle Paul, God is teaching us something about himself, and he's teaching us something about ourselves, and he's also teaching us something about the gospel in choosing Isaac over Ishmael. So look at Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, what is this potential failure of God's plan that Paul is denying here. Well, he's been talking about his desire to see the Israelites, the Jews, come to faith in Jesus Christ. He desires for the Israelites to be saved. And yet, lamentably, they are not, by and large. By and large, for the most part, they are rejecting the gospel and they are rejecting Christ. And he laments this. But he he says there in the first few verses of chapter 9... He says, you know, this is curious, though, that that the Israelites are not being saved through the gospel in large numbers, that so many of them are rejecting the gospel because they were God's chosen people. So what happened? 
Did God's plan fail with his chosen people? And this is where he says in verse 6, not at all. Verse 6 again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For, because, here's the reason, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, we looked at this passage last week. This is a bit of a repeat. We looked at this passage last week, and we were looking at the difference between circumcision as the sign of entrance into the Old Testament people of God and baptism as a sign of entrance into the New Testament people of God. And we noted that in the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, was comprised of two groups, both those who were trusting in the promise of a Messiah, the anointed one who would come from God and save his people from their sins, and those who did not trust in that. Those who were not looking for that. Those who were not trusting in the promised Messiah. And so there were two Israels. There was an ethnic, physical Israel, what we might call national Israel, that was comprised of those who were, who were Israelites by physical circumcision. But within that, there was another Israel, true spiritual Israel. Those who were Israelites, not just by a physical circumcision, but by what we learned last week was a spiritual circumcision. Those who were true Israel by faith, not just by ethnicity or through their descendancy. So there's two Israels, ethnic physical Israel, true spiritual Israel. And Paul says here in Romans 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God's plan to save his people did not fail because not all who are descended from Israel are true spiritual Israel. Paul goes on to, to explain this beginning in verse 7. Of Romans 9. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That is, according to the flesh, according to ethnicity, according to their lineage. Not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. That's, that, sounds, that, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Not all are his offspring just because they're his offspring. What, what he's saying is, Not all are true spiritual Israel just because they're ethnic physical Israel. But he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's a quote from a few chapters later in Genesis. He goes on to explain this, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, referring to physical descendancy, being physical descendants of Abraham. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So if we are to be saved then we have to be a child of promise. So how do we become a child of promise? It, it, that's what we need to be. Not, not merely children who are physically descended from Abraham, ethnically, physically. So how does one become a child of promise? It's a very important question. Listen as Paul goes on in verse 9 of this passage. So for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He's quoting from Genesis here. So he's referring to Isaac. He's referring to Isaac as the one who's the child of promise. And then he goes on in this passage to, to talk about now, not just that, but now Isaac's sons, his twin boys, Jacob and Esau. He begins, begins to talk about them that we won't encounter in the Genesis account until chapter 25. 
But Paul uses them here in Romans 9 as an additional illustration to teach us the very same thing that he's using the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael to teach us. And that is that to become a child of God, a child of the promise, is simply an act of God's sovereign grace on our part. That that to be a, a child of promise, to be a child of God, is not our work. It is an act of God's sovereign grace on our part. In other words, what he's saying here is that Isaac didn't do anything to be a child of promise any more than his half-brother Ishmael did to become a child of promise. In the same way, um, yeah, Isaac didn't do anything to become a child of promise over against his half-brother Ishmael, any more than, as he's going to say, Jacob did anything to be a child of promise over against his twin brother in the womb, Esau. Listen to what he says in Romans 9 as he fleshes this out. So he's just told us that Isaac was a child of promise, not Ishmael. And then he says in verse 10, not only so, not only that, but also Rebekah, this is Isaac's wife years later, had conceived, when she had conceived children by one man, these are the twins, our forefather Isaac, So when she conceived the twins, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So just as God chose Isaac over Ishmael, so he chose Jacob over Ishmael. Esau. And then Paul tells us here why. Why did he so choose? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And we don't have time to go back and unpack all of Romans 9. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the teaching that we did when we walked through that portion of Romans a couple of years ago. But Suffice it to say here that the reason that God chose Isaac over Ishmael is so that we would see that a child of promise is one, is a child of promise, only because of God's sovereign grace, only because of his unconditional choice. He makes it very, very clear we can't work our way into God's favor. We can't earn our way into God's good graces. We can't arrange our birth parents or our birth order to earn salvation. It's not inherited. It's not achieved. We cannot manipulate God into giving us the privilege of being adopted as his sons and daughters. As Paul says, our salvation is ours, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So the obvious question then becomes... Is it not then unjust of God to call this person and not this person? To which Paul plainly replies in the same passage, beginning in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. To put it bluntly, the question is not why would God save this person and not this person. The question is why would God save anyone at all? 
We are, all of us, sinners and rebels against God who deserve judgment. And God graciously saves us. And why does he do this? Why does he save anyone at all? Because he is a God of sovereign grace. And so, if God has saved you, it is because he has been pleased to graciously give you a new heart and a new life. And with that new heart, you have believed on the gospel. You have trusted in Christ. See, God's sovereign and unconditional choice of you to be his does not in any way eliminate your need to repent and believe on Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. Rather, it is his sovereign grace that enables you to do so. It is his sovereign grace that enables you to repent and believe. Otherwise, you would not. As the lyrics to that modern hymn, All I Have is Christ by Jordan Coughlin says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. So Isaac didn't deserve to be the child of promise. He did nothing to earn the right to be the child of promise. God sovereignly and unconditionally chose him to be the child of promise. Just as we are chosen by God, unconditionally, sovereignly, not by anything in us or about us, but simply because of his sovereign grace to be his. So you might wonder, has God chosen you to be his child? Well, have you trusted in Christ? Have you trusted in his finished work on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sin against God? If so, then he has chosen you because otherwise you would never have chosen him. If you haven't trusted in Christ alone, please hear me on this. If you haven't trusted in Christ alone, and his finished work on the cross as your only hope. And if you persist in that unbelief to your dying breath, then you will suffer the consequences of your sin and rebellion against God. And that, those consequences are eternity and judgment. But perhaps God has chosen you to be his. And perhaps he has you here this morning so that you might hear this good news. That you can't earn this. That you don't get this by being born to a certain family or in a certain order. It's not anything about who you are or even what you do. But it is given to you by God's sovereign grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So for you, I simply ask, will you trust in Christ? Will you trust in Christ alone and believe that what he did on the cross he did for you? I pray you do, and if you do, then friend, you demonstrate that God has sovereignly and unconditionally chosen you to be his child. So all the praise, all the honor, all the thanks, all the glory for your salvation and mine belongs to God alone, not us. Now I want to close briefly by looking just for a moment at, uh, if you flip back over to Genesis 17, Looking at this last section, beginning in verse 22, 
where Abraham obeys. He obeys the command to circumcise himself, his son, and all the male servants in his household. Look at verse 22. When he, speaking of God, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So the theophany is finished now. God's physical manifestation and speaking with Abraham in chapter 17 is over. God arises, he, he, he goes up from Abraham, and he leaves his presence physically. And, and just parenthetically, just a reminder, God doesn't work that way with us anymore. He doesn't. And when, we, when we looked at the first part of this, we, we, we talked about how sometimes we're jealous of the Old Testament saints because they get these physical manifestations of God, these theophanies where God shows up. And God speaks to them in person. And we were reminded that God has shown up to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has enfleshed himself and he has shown us to be who he is. He's given us the exact representation of his nature in Jesus Christ. And he has given us his word as a a physical and ongoing permanent speech to us. We don't have to wait for a divine speech to come down and show himself and speak to us. All we have to do is open up the word of God or meditate on, memorize it so that we have it with us all throughout the day. He constantly speaks to us. But friend, God never leaves us like he did then. He has given us the Holy Spirit. If you placed your faith in Christ, he has made you a temple of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit of God abides and he will never leave you. He never goes up from you. I'm encouraged by that. May we not be jealous of these Old Testament saints who got glimpses of God. We have him with us constantly. So for Abraham, after this theophany, God shows himself to Abraham. He commands him. Remember the command, walk before me and be blameless. But then also part of the command is, I want you to circumcise yourself, your son, and all the male male folks in your household. So after this, after this theophany, God leaves him. What does Abraham do? Look at verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This was nothing less than radical obedience to the command of God. I mean, put yourself in Abraham's shoes here. This was obedience that required deep trust in God, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain. It was pain. I mean, he is 99 years old. His son is 13. All the men of his household, they're not babies. This is radical obedience to God. Abraham may not have had 100% pure, unwavering faith that God, in fact, was going to give him a son through Sarah. As we continue throughout this study of Genesis, we're going to see that he continues to waver. He continues to try to make shortcuts. So his, he's, he's still in process in his faith journey, right? He, he's still going to make mistakes. He's still not going to trust God 100%. But yet, when God says cut, he cuts. 
When God gives him a clear command, he obeys. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost, and regardless of the pain. Abraham's faith is still in process, as is ours. He's got a lot more faith lessons to learn in his faith journey, as do we. And he's going to make a lot of, have a lot of failures in some of these faith trials that he's given in his life, as we will as well. But at least here in this instance, church, God is glorified and honored in Abraham's radical, faith-filled obedience. So I want us to close by simply asking, what is God requiring of you this morning? Maybe it's a sin that he wants you to lay down. Maybe it's a spiritual discipline that he wants you to pick up. Maybe it's a, it's a brother or sister in the church that he wants you to come alongside and disciple and encourage. Or maybe he wants you to seek to be discipled or encouraged by another brother or sister in the church. Or maybe he wants you to step out in faith and share this good news with someone within your sphere of influence this week. What is God requiring of you? Circumcision marked out Abraham and his household as God's people. And though it cost him, and though it hurt, he obeyed. And your obedience and mine to that which God is requiring of us this morning will mark us out as God's people. And God will be glorified in your faithful obedience to him. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you are one of God's people. Maybe you have professed faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue, but you've never made that public. You've never been marked out as one of God's people publicly through believer's baptism. Maybe that's what he's requiring of you this morning. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, I will tell you that is what he's requiring of you because it's a command. Or maybe, maybe you just need to come to Christ by faith this morning. Maybe you've never professed faith in Christ. Maybe you're investigating the claims of Christ, but you recognize this morning that you're outside the family of God. Maybe this morning needs to be the day that you finally and formally Become one of God's people by faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, may God be glorified in us and through us as we determine to offer to him by the grace of God, by the Spirit's power, not just our lips of praise, but our radical acts of faith-filled obedience. Let us do that to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for recording this story of Abraham. And we're grateful, Father, that you don't whitewash the patriarchs to be the perfect people that we could never be. But you show them to us in reality for who they are, warts and all. And so, Father, we thank you for the display of Abraham and 
the way in which he wavers in his faith and the way in which you are patient and gracious with him to continue to walk with him and correct him as a loving father does. And we thank you so much, Father, for the way in which you do that in our life. May that be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters here who are, like me, in a faith journey, in process. Father, may we trust that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. If we will simply stay submitted and yielded to the work of Christ in us. So I pray that you would mature and grow the affections of my brothers and sisters in this room to love your son Jesus more deeply and to be conformed to his image so that you be glorified through our lives. But Father, we strip away all of those lessons. We see what you're doing here in Abraham. You're keeping your promise. We sinned against you in the garden. We destroyed everything. But you've made a way. And you're working that way out through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob and through Joseph and ultimately to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem as you enflesh yourself in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died for sinners like us. We who know you by faith thank you so much for your plan, your perfect gracious plan and Lord we pray for those in this room and our families and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our community that don't know you in that way God would you would you use us and our feeble attempts to proclaim this good news to grant faith to those that we love and bring them into your kingdom so that you would be glorified as you deserve to be through them. We ask that you do this, Father. Please do this. We beg of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.